I'm Sarah Resnick. And I'm LaShawn Moore. And we are the hosts of the Weave Podcast, a project of the weaving yarn shop, Just Yarn and Fiber. Hello. Welcome to episode 62. This week on the podcast, I'm speaking with Liz Spencer. Liz, who you may be familiar with as the Dogwood Dyer on Instagram, is a natural dyer who advocates for slow fashion and sustainable textiles. She has a variety of growing experience, from farming organic natural dyes in between rows of a family heritage orange grove in Southern California, to community-centric projects on the sidewalks of Brooklyn, New York. Hello, Liz. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining us today. Hi, LaShawn. Thank you so much for having me. Can you start out by telling us about your background and sharing how you found your way into the world of textiles and farming? Yeah, so I always sort of say that my entrance into, well, at least natural dye farming, and by the way, when I say farming, I mean, on a very small scale, I mean, I would say actually more of a large garden scale is what I grow, but... um, I always say that I had a backwards entrance into the natural dye world um, because although growing my dyes will always be an interest and I think a a really important part of my practice, I didn't actually get into uh, the dyeing aspect of it until after I started growing them. So I, I started a natural dye garden project while I was studying for my master's degree in sustainability and fashion. Um, And it was actually for me more so I was, um, I got into the project and started the garden because I was just really interested personally. And I know I wanted something as a, a, like a break and basically a respite from writing my dissertation and creating my collection when I was, uh, when I was in school. And so Um, little to me, I really didn't, um, anticipate it becoming, um, a love, a passion, an obsession, and then ultimately becoming, uh, you know, uh, my full-time job in my business. Um, (laughs) so, uh, yeah, I started the garden, um, in collaboration with a currently existing community garden right next to one of the campus locations of the London College of Fashion where I was attending, and they already were growing edibles and had been for a year in the same area, but there was an extended area of green space that was currently being unused uh, that belonged to the college. And actually to the to the college, I think it was probably more so of a nuisance to them to have to, you know, mow and um, pick up trash. And so uh, we proposed that we would take the space and create a dye garden and uh, the program length was 15 months, uh, the program that I was studying, and it was really the perfect amount of time for me to do the proposal, get the funding for the seeds and the soil, and um, build the raised beds with the help of the community, and uh, you know, sow the seeds, grow the plants, collect the dye stuffs, uh, dye some silk scarves that we then sold at a craft fair to raise money for the following year's seeds. <laughs> so... It was, for me, like I said, kind of like my pet project or uh, more so just a a reason for me to get outside and to meet people in the community outside of my program. Um, But 
I really just couldn't, you know, I, it was something that became a, a love and I carried it along when I moved back to the States. And um, so that was sort of the provenance of my, um, of my foray into natural dyes. And I think uh, for a good reason that, you know, because I started growing plants before I even had any experience with dyeing, I think it's another reason why I'll continue to be thirsty for knowledge and, and stay interested in the subject uh, because, you know, I'm dipping my toes into so many peripheral fields of, you know, botany, horticulture, um, history. Uh, so it really, ethnobotany. So I really, um, it just keeps me really interested. <laughs> There's so much to learn when, you, when you're also growing your own dye stuffs. Mm, wow, interesting. And can you talk about ethnobotany and how that plays into your practice? Yeah, I mean, I actually feel like I'm just sort of getting to that now in my practice, my practice, like, you know, seven years later, I started the garden in 2011. Um, <clears throat> I mean, in some sense, it always has been a part of it because people have been central to my um, gardening efforts. Uh I think actually maybe more recently in the last three years, I've felt a little bit more isolated um, and less involved in my community. I think that's just more so personal circumstance, have, yeah, having two young kids and being at home a lot. <laughs> but mm. when we, when we, when I left, sadly, when I had to leave the garden in, in 2012, when I left London, I moved to New York and, you know, being in an urban space, um, New York feels much more urban than London in a lot of ways, but um, still, they were both still urban spaces, but really uh, not having a green space. You know, I started these, started seeds again that following year and really didn't have a plan of what to do <laughs> with my <laughs> with my plants. And my partner, who's a, a landscape designer, was sort of chuckling, like laughing at me, like, what is your plan to do here? I mean, I actually, you know, I had inquired at the local community gardens to see if there's any open beds and they all had wait lists. And so I really didn't have a place to grow um, that was, you know, work workable and feasible for me. <clears throat> and so I um, actually it was uh, the idea of my partner, my uh, husband, Sam, who said, well, let's just get these plants in the ground. It doesn't matter where. Uh, let's sort of co-opt our own space. And because of that, we created, you know, because of the need for to put the plants into the ground, um, we created a project called the Brooklyn Tree Guard, where we really just planted the the plants, the dye plants in usable space that was not being used. Um, you know, in in the five boroughs and every sidewalk has um, some space for um, trees, whether or not they actually have trees. And the city had just finished a program called the Million Trees Initiative, where they planted more than a million trees throughout the five boroughs. And so at least on our block where we lived in Bed-Stuy, there were... Um, lots of the young trees, and then some of the tree plots didn't even have trees. Um, but we used the, that space, and um, it actually, I think, was to the benefit of the, the trees themselves because uh, we're creating more soil diversity and health just by having other plants there surrounding the trees, you know, to avoid compacted soil. And, um, and then the tree guard that we built was really just a, uh, a raised bed that had a bench top, and so to answer your question about ethnobotany, I think that really was where I felt the most in, the most involved with my community where I could, um, you know, when we built the beds, 
um, community members, like basically our neighbors. That's how we got to know our neighbors is that we were out there building the beds and, you know, have, we had a barbecue and fed people who wanted to help. And <laughs> so I think getting to see, um, get literally getting outside on my sidewalk and, and talking to people that would walk by and um, letting them know that the benches were there for them to enjoy. And like the owner of the bodega below my apartment, um, he didn't have to bring a milk crate out to sit and, you know, and rest on his break. He could actually sit on the tree guard bench. <laughs> So, wow. yeah, and then also just people seeing me as the plants started to come to fruition and um, started to create flowers or whatever it is that I needed, seeing me pick for, you know, uh, for the use of the, of the plants, for the dye, um, I would start up, you know, inevitably I'd always be in conversation while I was picking. People would be really curious as to what I was doing. So um, talking to people about, you know, what plants can do for us. <laughs> I think that was really, uh, for me, the most experience and the, the most um, sort of furtive um, time that I had, at least in the realm of ethnobotany. Um, and I miss that. <laughs> I mean, that's what's one of the wonderful things about being in an urban space is that you, you're constantly around people. So um, recently, I mean, for the last three years, I've been in California, in Southern California, and we moved here from New York more so for personal reasons. We're here for um, to take care of a family house before it's being sold and really just to enjoy it um, because it's, it's a multi-generational home. That, and it had a little bit more space, well, quite a bit more space for us to enjoy while our kids were young. Um, and so uh, I really, and also to having two young kids, I've been uh, a little bit insular. So I do really miss engaging with people on a daily basis, um, especially when it comes to sustainable fibers and, and color. Community-based work seems to be at the center of a lot of natural textile dyeing. And um, when you were starting this garden in bed or when you were creating these beds, what were some of the uh, ways that you organized. So was it like grassroots? You just kind of like saw a patch in front of your apartment and sowed seeds or did you have to go through like a community board or anything like that? Or did you ever run into any issues doing that? Yeah, I think that's a really great question. And that's a common question. A lot of people were curious because if they're in an urban space, they might be you know, interested in doing the same. And I highly encourage people to, um, to do the same because actually those tree pits in particular, um, we looked into it before we started building rules, uh, or laws really. I mean, the only stipulations, if you're going to build something to, um, something around the tree pit, especially for gardening is that it not be short enough to be a tripping hazard. So I think it has to be above 18 inches tall, and then um, the side that is facing the street where cars are going to be parking has to be open so that it's not a, you know, so car doors can open. And those are really the only two rules we found. <laughs> and yeah, so apart from that, that space is, is ours. I mean, I think um, within reason, right? But we were just building these beds and we're really just, I think, adding to the um, to the to the sidewalk, um, you know, beautification and, um, and really just to the benefit of the trees as well, like I said before. So, um, I also feel like I was, 
had was kind of following a model or at least an instinct or not an instinct, but a, a behavior that I had learned as well from interning at the textile art center. Um, and just that, you know, the internship that I was, that I did there was specific to natural dyes. It was called sowing seeds. Um, and it, to our knowledge, at least was the first CSA model for dye plants. And, uh, most people probably, um, know what a CSA is, but, um, it's actually an acronym for community supported agriculture. So it's just a, a direct relationship with the grower, whether that be edibles or in this case, dye plants and the consumer. And so the Textile Art Center had a little bit of space given to them for a period of time where they could grow um, in Brooklyn, not far from their main hub. And the, I guess what I say when I followed their model, you know, they really wanted to engage with the community. So they would oftentimes host free workshops using the dyes that we were growing, anything that was left over from what we were giving to our CSA shareholders um, so that the and then, you know, whenever we were there working in the garden, whether it be um, weeding, picking flowers, watering, the gates were open and it was an open and inviting space like most community gardens are um, to invite members of the community to come in and learn. So um, I think that's really, I kind of followed that model. And um, again, it's, it, was, it was a lot about, it was more so about the people um, well, not more so, but I would say maybe equally about, just as much about the people and engagement um, as it was about the reaping color for me, at least. Yeah, that's super interesting. Did that attribute to some of the work and the collaborations that you did with the Brooklyn Fashion and Design Accelerator? Yeah, I actually um, found out about the Brooklyn Fashion and Design Accelerator or BFDA Um I think just through probably through the people that I knew and the community I had become a part of from the textile art center. And, um, I became a fellow there after I had applied and it was really convenient actually (laughs) nicely enough. It was literally three blocks away from my apartment, um, where I had a a studio space and some business mentorship. Um, and, I wasn't there long enough as a fellow, I feel, to really, you know, fulfill the projects that I wanted to. I had a lot going on. I had a young, I had my first baby, and then I also had started um, teaching part-time at Parsons. And so I really, uh, if I had stayed maybe another two years, um, my aim was to start a dye garden on the roof there, of the Pfizer building where the BFDA is housed. And... um, but I didn't get to, I didn't get to that goal. <laughs> and then I also had proposed, <laughs> some, I also had to propose some, some Brooklyn tree guards around the perimeter of the building there on Flushing, um, where the Pfizer building is situated. And again, didn't get to fulfill that. But, um, but I think I really helped educate anyone that came through the uh, BFDA. They, they give open and free tours to the public often. And they're also often, um, running events and um, just people to open their eyes to the possibilities of natural colors, whether it be, you know, uh, dried flowers as a specimen um, to sort of pique their interest. Um, you know, it's sort of, it would be, I think, an, an uncommon odd thing to see 
plant matter, <laughs> you know, in a, in a sew and cut and sew facility. Um, and just to right. start the conversation about how natural dyes can be a feasible alternative um, for, um, for apparel and, and products. So we know you as Liz um, on the podcast, but on Instagram, everyone knows you as the dog with dyer. And I'm super interested in where the name comes from. Yeah, I think that's also maybe uh, one of the most common questions that I get. <laughs> um, and it is it is a really, um, I think most people probably assume that, a do- that the dogwood itself is a dye plant. Dogwood is a species of tree, um, really common in the east, along, along the whole eastern seaboard, but particularly in the southeast region of the United States. And, um, but, and it, I mean, any plant can be a dye plant, really. Um, there are a few plants in the world that actually give um, certain colors that kind of fill out the color spectrum, like red and blue and purple. Um, but with the dogwood, I actually haven't ever used the dogwood as a dye plant. Um, and I picked that as my name for my business um, because I didn't want to use just my personal name Um and I wanted something that was evocative of nature and also personal for me. The dogwood is something that I really remember as a um, a distinct memory of the coming of spring. When I, I, I grew up moving around, but I spent early years of my childhood in the Carolinas and North and South Carolina. So, And I didn't even actually know this until after the fact, but the dogwood is the state flower of North Carolina. <laughs> Um, so yeah, so it's, um, and that's where I was born, but, and it's always just been one of my favorite flowers. Um, and I have heard though that you, that you may be able to get like a blue or a green or, which is a very interesting color for the natural dyer. Um, not very common in nature. I don't think it's very light fast, but it would be fun to try to get a blue or a green from the berry specifically from a dogwood. But yeah, that's the story behind the dogwood dyer. (laughs) interesting when I first read your name I um, automatically thought logwood yeah and I was like wait no that's just dogwood (laughs) (laughs) yeah I no I just thought it it sounded nice too with the two the the two d sounds like dogwood and dire and um and and yeah so it is it's personal and but I know I'm sorry it doesn't make much sense (laughs) to a dire at least (laughs) well it's definitely working so (laughs) yeah I'm glad (laughs) so what kind of dye materials do you grow so I grow um and well so I grow somewhere between I'd say five to twenty varieties of plants each year and the last few years I've actually grown less variety um, more quantity, but I've really decided that, you know, as far as my palette goes, you know, the colors that I'd like to have, um, yielding from my garden, um, that with just a few colors and then, you know, over dyeing, you can create the whole spectrum. So you really don't need every plant. And it's for me, I'm, I'm always curious to try a different plant and see if I can make it work depending upon where I'm growing. Um, but I also don't have, um, it's just me there gardening. So, uh, there's to have, you know, 
more than 10 different plants to grow and to really meet all their needs and their specific characteristics, you know, what type of soil they like, how much water they need. Um, it, there's only so much attention that I can, that I can pay. So for that, I, and then also depending upon, I'm in Southern California right now where it's much more arid and um, a hotter climate than it was say in New York where I was growing before. So um, I have a little bit more of a limitation, which I actually enjoy. Um, and so I'm going indigo and um, matter root. Indigo creates a blue and matter root creates a red. And then um, lots of other plants, whether it be flowers or the stalks or stems or the whole plant top itself that create yellow, like uh, chamomile, um, cosmos, um, Coreopsis can create shades of yellow to orange to brown. Um, and yellow is funnily enough, I think it's probably nature's favorite color when it comes to dye because there are lots of flavonoids and, um, in, the, in the plant world that create lots of yellow. Um, so mm. yeah, there's a lot of choice for everything from a butter yellow to a straw color to a bright butter yellow to a straw color to a bright sunny yellow. Um, so I've got probably at least three or four different uh, plant species that can create a yellow. And then I also, I grow, um, recently I've been offering seeds for sale for anybody that wants to start their own dye garden and a special plant that I've, um, come to know in the last couple of years is a purple pincushion and the pincushion flowers, um, it's Latin name is scabiosa and it comes in all different flowering variety colors. Uh, but the, the type that I focus on is the deep dark purple and it can create a purple, um, and because it's, uh, its chem chemical constituent, the dye itself is a anthocyanin, which is really common in the edible world. Um, it's very fun to play with. It can go because of its, it's very pH sensitive. So it can go to green with one pH or it can go to a more pink with another pH change. Um, it's not the most light fast of dyes. I also like to use that, you know, using plants that aren't the most light fast. I don't completely rule them out of my practice, but I use them sort of as a a way to start that conversation and talking about color and ephemerality and you know how we view it and how we've come to know color in relation to textiles because of um what we've become accustomed to which is a synthetic, a synthetic dye which is we we expect it to last forever and although our clothes are we don't last forever <laughs> so um it's kind of interesting <laughs> that we have this expectation on the on the color of our clothing um, to outlast us, um, or even our, you know, our preference for them. But so I, I like using, um, this really special, the purple pin cushion flower. Um, it's grown pretty well in my garden. It's beautiful. Um, it's not even necessarily the best choice for, uh, um, or the only, only choice for purple by no means. But for me, um, I, I just love the way it looks. It's great for, uh, someone who's interested in just, uh, Sorry, it's a beautiful, beautiful flower. It could be great for arrange, flower arrangements, um, and they dry really nicely too. So I can keep them for a long time. Well, that sounds awesome. I've never heard of that plant before. I'll have to look into it. Yeah, it's really. I mean, all flowering varieties, all the colors should definitely be experimented with for dye potential. But 
um, that deep purple is really like, it's pretty spectacular how much it gives. It's pretty potent. Mm. And you also mentioned that you grow matter. I am starting some matter now, and I know it takes a couple years for the roots to establish. Can you talk about how you're growing and cultivating the plant and extracting the dye? Yes. Um, matter root is a, an investment, right? <laughs> so, um, yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think when people hear that and they haven't, they don't know yet uh, that it takes two to three years for the color to develop, um, to get to that red, which is what we're after, you know, not just a pink or an orange, um, their eyes kind of go wide and then they're like, wow, this really is slow fashion. <laughs> but uh, it's, um, I think it is worth it for me at least because knowing how rare red, um, as a dye color is in nature, especially if you want something that's plant based and not insect based, because there are insect dyes that give um, cochineal particularly that give pink and, and can give red uh, depending upon how it's pr processed um, but you know as a vegan option um, red or matter is really um, where it's at for for us here at least in North America <clears throat> so I and I I I really have felt the the investment of the the matter because I I started growing it in London when I started my first garden but then I left not long, you know, 15 months later. So I didn't, which isn't long enough uh, for the red, for the red to have developed in the root. So I, I didn't get to harvest it there. And then I started it in Brooklyn and I was in Brooklyn for nearly four, almost four years, but um, because of when I started it and also because of how busy I became, you know, with a, as a working mom, really, um, I didn't get to harvest there. And then, so finally, on the third attempt of growing it in Southern California, I was able to stay put and have the attention and time needed to um, cultivate it and harvest it. And I harvested it. I, I dug it up this last fall and have dried it and done a few experiments. And I'm really excited to report that I, that I got a red. <laughs> and um, <laughs> that, yeah, it's it's a pretty cool plant considering that once you get it started and after that first season, I would, it's really sort of something that you can kind of neglect. The work is more so in the beginning. Um, and you know, you obviously you can come back to it, um, when it's, um, come back to life in the summers, the, those three summers in between, um, and encourage more root growth and amend the soil if you need to create more of that alizarin, which makes the red color. It's the, it's the chemical constituent in the plant that makes the red. There are all sorts of other different, um, colorants in it um yellows and browns but the red is what you're after that you really want that alizarin so you can um change the soil soil alkalinity and bend back some of the plant uh some of the plant uh, stems to create encourage more root growth um and then uh, but really i mean it's kind of one of those lower maintenance plants it's very different from indigo for instance where you really want to um make sure that the soil is uh, very fertilized and that it gets a really deep uh, watering at least once a week, especially during the really high days of summer. But matter is pretty hardy. <laughs> so although it is a time, um, it's really, I, I think it's on the spectrum of plants. It's sort of easy to, uh, to grow. And um, so, yeah, it's, I, I highly recommend it for anybody that wants 
that color in their natural dye practice. Um, and it's not just red, you, you can get pink, coral, orange, um, and then when over dyed, you know, it's limitless. Like over dyed with indigo, you get this really like aubergine purple and over dyed with a, a, a bright yellow, you get bright orange, a tangerine, like it's just an incredible plant that can, that can give a lot. Wow, that sounds so awesome. I'm so excited. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it is. Uh, it was a thrilling moment for me. That's for sure. When I dug it up in November. Yeah, and it's such a beautiful color. I mean, it's like one of the most, um, it just has so much depth in the red. Yeah, the red is, um, and then there's some sort of like tips and tricks when you're doing the um the processing of the dye plant itself to, or the root to get the red. Um, like for instance, I like to do a cold process and, you know, slow that process down even more. So like, I mean, if you've waited two years, you might as well, you can wait a few more weeks to do the cold processing, um, to begin with, um, so that you don't, you know, it's, it's, it's a little sensitive to high temperature. Um, I like to do that cold soak Mm. beforehand to get some of the yellow off. Um, and then slowly steep the, the matter root to get that red. And, um, you know, if you don't have hard water, you can amend your water to make it a little bit more hard. It likes that calcium, um, to develop the red. And so, yeah, just, just like every person, every dye plant has its own sort of needs and, um, and characteristics that you can cater to, to coax a certain color or to get a higher yield of a certain color. Wow, that's awesome. Do you have any new projects that you're working on that you want to talk about? Yeah, so this year I have moved actually. I'm no longer where I had been for the last three years. Um, We were living at that family house that I mentioned, the reason for moving to Southern California. Um, and our time there came to an end and we've moved, we're still in Southern California, but we're closer to, we're right on the ocean now and I'm in a much smaller space. So I have a, my garden, I don't actually have ground to call my own to, to grow in currently. Um, so I'm just have a little deck garden for fun and, um, starting smaller plants to sell or to give out for people if they want to grow their own dye plants. But I'm working now with, um, American farmers and nurseries to grow on a larger scale, uh, to create, um, basically just more dye stuffs, more than I can personally do myself. And, um, and I'm trying to, uh, to, to create basically small products and, um, educational opportunities for people to learn in their own homes. If I can't be there with them, I teach workshops commonly at least, you know, once or twice a month in Southern California. And I also come back to New York a couple times a year to teach. Uh, but I often get people reaching out saying that they can't come to my workshops because they don't, they're not near me, or perhaps it's maybe, um, something that they, that they can't make time for. Um, so I, I'm hoping to create more die kits and encourage people to be creative on their own time. Um, and so that's one of the reasons for connecting with local farmers. Um, and I'm also, just this last weekend, I literally just came from um, a, a get-together um, called the North American Indigo Project in the Bay Area. And I just feel so 
alive and excited about the possibility of um, reviving a fiber shed group here in Southern California. Much promise for this area. So many amazing designers and um, and resources. You know, a manufacturing hub um, still here. Um, one of the one of the last ones actually in in America. So I think there's a lot of possibility for this area. So this year is going to be a lot of uh, work to engage with my community and um, and hopefully uh, revitalize um, interest in growing fibers and color here in, in Southern California specifically. Awesome. And where can people go on social media and the internet to follow your work and to sign up for some of these workshops? So my my website is thedogwooddyer.com uh, and I have a workshop section where all my workshops are listed and um, I'm going to New York in May so I'll be there to teach everything from painting with natural dyes to natural dyeing with food waste and I'm also teaching an intensive at FIT um, which if you're really thirsty for a lot of knowledge and you want like a longer period more than just a three-hour experience that's a really great workshop um, and on Instagram, I am the Dogwood Dyer. Great. So before you go, I have one question, and it is, do you have any advice or words of wisdom to share with weavers and textile enthusiasts? Yes, definitely. I think maybe to, to give some advice from learning, you know, the hard way as well as learning um, through experience, I guess it sort of touches on what I've already um addressed in our conversation, but that community is so key. Um, I feel for, at least for me, it has been, um, for the creative process as well as, you know, your, uh, your emotional well-being as an artist, (laughs) because, uh, I found that, you know, when I was really engaged with my community in New York, for instance, um, uh, I felt like the possibilities were sort of endless, um, and more creative um, uh, life than I than I really could on my own, and that's just I think just a, a um, because of my circumstance of when we moved to Southern California, I was um, like I said had a young family and was spending more time by myself, which is good too. You know, there's parts of your life, but um, now getting back, I feel so much more invigorated and full of life in terms of um, in a when I really am engaged with people. So getting, finding your people, you know, uh, when I found the textile art center, I, um, I really felt like it was my, my launch pad into, um, into my practice and even the start of my business. So, um, have others help you help yourself. (laughs) So connecting with others is really (laughs) big for me as a piece of advice. That's amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you. I love this podcast and what you guys are doing. And uh, I'm really honored to be to be a part of it. Oh, well, we're honored that you have come and shared some of your wisdom. Thank you. <laughs> That's a wrap. Liz is a truly talented grower and maker. And I highly suggest you follow her on Instagram as well as support her workshops. You can find links to her work at www.justyarn.com slash episode 62. 
Next week on the podcast, Sarah is talking to Deb Brandon, a textile artist and weaver, writer, and brain injury survivor. Tune in next week for that episode. And until next time, happy weaving! Happy weaving!